This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. We took my um, youngest, my three-year-old, to preschool for the first day today. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, so we dropped him off, and like I took the morning, I took like a little time in the morning so I could go with my wife to drop him off at his preschool. My son was already in kindergarten. And uh, we walked in, and like I expected there to be like a little bit of like, oh, bye, you know, sadness on a his moment. part. But yeah. as soon as we got to the classroom, he walked right in, like never even, t- I was like, bye, bye, well. bye, Elliot. He never even <laughs> turned around. He's like, nope, I'm playing now. I was like, well, okay. Uh-uh. Mom will so be back in a few well. hours. Yeah, it went really well, except for me. You know, now I feel like oh, he doesn't need me. Forget it. I'm done. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm yeah. sure he was just, you know, excited about all the new things. <laughs> right. Hello, Lila. Hey, Derek. How's it going? Good. Um, we're joined by Lila Winner today. Um, Sean is out at RubyConf Portugal and on his way to um, Windy City Ruby, Windy City Rails, one of those two conferences. I don't know. I forget what it's called. Um, so I'm joined today by Lila. <laughs> so what have you been working on lately? Well, um, outside of client work, last Friday I helped run a meetup. Well, I actually more accurately helped organize and host a meetup here in the ThoughtBot San Francisco office. And the meetup is called um, Programming Languages I've Been Meaning to Try but Haven't Gotten Around to Yet, also known as uh, Plibmit Bugatti (laughs) by some, (laughs) also known as the Unpronounceable Meetup. I can't take credit for the idea. I was a friend of a friend, Star Simpson, who originated the concept, but we've been hosting them every few months here at ThoughtBot in San Francisco. And um, so last Friday night, uh, I was doing that and had a really good time. Cool. How many, what do you get for like a turnout, a turnout there? Um, good question. So the previous couple of meetups we did on Saturdays during the day, and the turnout was probably around 30 people, I would say. This time, Friday evening, it was closer to 20. Okay, that's still that's pretty good. Yeah, it was nice. It's like intimate, but they're still like a lot of people you don't know. Right. I like the idea of having something where you're just like, I'm just going to go for these however many hours it is and try something I've never tried before. Yes, um, that's exactly the point. Right. And find people who are probably also interested. Like you're not all trying 30 different things, right? So you're like coalescing around like yep. things to try. So Yep. Yep. No, totally. That's exactly the format. People come in. We say, what do you want to work on? Oh, so-and-so over there is working on the same thing. Why don't you go talk to them? Right. And um, it seems to work really well. Yeah. Cool. What would you work on? I worked on learning a graph database technology, which is not a language I know, but... Um, it language is, you know, it's a <laughs> language or framework or whatever. Um, so I was learning Neo4j, okay, which is a graph database, and um, interested in learning it for a side project. And yeah, I was just noodling around trying to figure out how to get it running locally and how to work with it using Ruby. Basically, Th- those were kind of my objectives. I've always I've I've heard things about Neo4j and I've heard I've been on like been in the early stages of some projects where people are like oh we could use a graph database for this we could use Neo4j but when it comes down to it 
I think every project I've been on, yeah, every single project I've ever been on has had a relational database, either yes. uh, Postgres yep. or MySQL or sometimes Oracle. Um, so every single project has had that. I've never worked with a graph database before. I've never even worked with like something like Mongo before. Mm. So how, like, what would, what did, you said, you mentioned you had a side project. Like, what do you, what do you think you would use uh, Neo4j for? Oh, yeah. So the side project, and this is going to sound a little ambitious, but the side project is um, a recommendation engine for journal articles. So the idea is as a scientist or a doctor, I want to be able to stay up to date with research in my field, but I don't have time to trawl through. I don't even know because I'm not a scientist or <laughs> a doctor. I don't even know what they would trawl through. Um, Journal of American Medicine or something like that. Isn't that one? I don't know. <laughs> yes. You know, um, nature. Nature. Right. right? <laughs> I'm sure they all read nature. Um, so the idea is to automate that and provide, you know, an email every few weeks that says, hey, here are these articles. Given your previous publications, here are some articles we think you should read. So, yeah, it's it's pretty ambitious and it's something I devote with my husband. My husband and I work on it together. We devote like a couple hours a week to it. So it's not like we're spending tons of time on it, but it's exciting because it's not a cred app. It's something totally different from what I do on a day to day basis at ThoughtBot using different technologies and techniques and ways of thinking about data. So that is the project. And the reason we need a graph database is we need to be able to represent relationships between all of these different journal articles that we can get from an open API called the PubMed API. So sorry, to clarify, the process is pulling down a bunch of data from PubMed and taking that data, transforming it from blobs of JSON into nodes in our graph database and then drawing relationships between those nodes. Okay. Yeah. And you draw relationships based on words in the abstract of these things or like yeah, are, there, are yeah. there tags or like? Yeah, that's one thing. Exactly. Like words in the abstract, um, last author maybe, and um, keywords. There is actually a keywords list property that the PubMed API provides for each article. So stuff like that. And so the so the idea for Neo4j, just from an overview that I looked at, is like the nodes would be these documents, and then you have edges between yes. that connect the documents, and the edges in your case are just that the things are related, right? Yes. So in this case, the relationship would be, for example, so we might have two article nodes, and we might also have an author node, and we would be able to say that both of these articles. Uh, are related to the same author, so there would be an edge between them. Okay. In that way, does that make sense? Yeah, and then so the other thing it has is like attributes. So would the attribute so and nodes and edges can have attributes, right? Right. And so, so would it, the attribute be like how they're related, or is that or my attribute is like um, a good simple example would be an author can have a first name attribute. Okay. All right, cool. Yeah. So that's that that sounds like a good fit for something like that. Like I, I if if that were my project, I would shoehorn it into a relational database because that's what I know. <laughs> but <Yes>. um <laughs> it's really hard for me to not think in relational terms because that's what I'm used to. 
So I'm, I'm definitely kind of defaulting to thinking about this data in terms of tables and columns and mm. foreign keys. So it's, it's been fun to try to think of it in a different way. But also we have 12 gigabytes of data. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why we're, that's another right. reason we're not using a, a relational database. Yeah. Even on our standard like CRUD apps, I do have a hard, I have a hard time divorcing like the high level design that we try to chase after by like flushing things out with feature specs and stuff like that from like, I'm always jumping ahead to like, oh, and then I'm going to have a person table and I'm going to have a this table and I'm going to have an author yep. table and I'm going to have, I'm like, no, 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 just stop. Just, just wait, just <laughs> wait till we get there. But that's just like how I started doing things from when I started learning how to do development. So I'm just used to like trying to break things down into relational databases constantly. Mm -hmm. But 12 gigs of author of, uh, you know, article data would probably make me <laughs> reconsider that, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, you could try it and see what happens <laughs> and then reconsider. <laughs> How has your uh, experience with it been going so far with, with um, using it? It's, it's been really positive because it, uh, Neo4j, that is, has really great documentation, which I didn't fully appreciate until I started trying to use it. It was one of the things when my husband and I were doing research, trying to figure out which graph database to use. It kind of seemed like Neo4j was the most popular and had a good Wikipedia page. So we were like, sure, we'll do that. And, and the documentation looked good. You know, it was like a first pass, like, yeah, the documentation looks reasonable. It looks like it's not a total disaster. But after actually starting to learn it and dig into it, I found that not only is it well organized and thorough, but there's also a strong focus on teaching which I think is interesting because it ties into the blog post you referred me to, the one by Steve Losh about how to write good documentation. Right. And when I read his first few paragraphs and saw that he was, the, 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 the main argument he was making was that documentation should aim to teach a user how to be an expert. Right. It made me realize that the Neo4j documentation and tooling seems quite good at that. And to provide specific examples, a lot of the materials on the website are tutorials. Like there are tutorials for learning the Cypher query language. And there are also links to educational videos and, and just like they really break it down step by step, do this tutorial, try this, to take you along this guided path of learning this tool. And the other thing that's really cool is that the primary interface for the developer is a web interface. It's a, a little web app that has a really nice UI and like nice little animations. And mm -hmm. it's, it's very pleasant. It's not like, um, you know, the command line Postgres console right although that's fine but it's just like you know it's a good change of pace <laughs> it is yeah so to answer your question that's how it has been going <laughs> yeah i mean that that article i referred you to it was also on my mind for various reasons which we can get into later but i really liked the the focus on like the title of the article it's from 2013 but i had never seen it before recently last week i think um the title is teach don't tell 
and yeah. he has one section in here where he says like guitar lessons are usually taught in person one-on-one -on -one with a teacher computer science is taught by professors in classrooms but programming library usage is taught by the documentation and i've never really thought of it as teaching before more of like I don't, I don't know what I was thinking of it as, but not like I'm teaching you how to use this library. Just like I'm telling you about this library yep. and like here are all the things it might do or here are like the most common things you might want to do with it. And yeah. maybe here's how you do them. Like I'm thinking specifically now of like clearance because that's the library I've been working with the most because I maintain it. And I've been working hard on the documentation lately and I've been focusing on like we have no API documentation at all. Um, the readme is basically the documentation and the readme mm -hmm. like that that's hard because it can do a lot so like trying to cram everything into the readme is right. like try is like throwing like the readme used to be a lot more thorough i shortened it up a little bit to try and make it more like get to the point a little quicker mm -hmm. and and hide some of the more like i would say advanced features that you know people don't necessarily need to know in detail about in the readme but like, I feel like, I still feel like it's kind of like throwing people into the deep end of a pool and like, there's too much there. Can I ask what prompted you to revisit the clearance documentation and like, what was the, the process or the, the thought process that led you to decide that it, some things needed to change? It seems like anytime, just based on like the issues and questions I get, which I don't get a lot, but I, but like, it seems like people don't know where to go from you know, Rails generate mm. clearance install to mm -hmm. now I need to do this other thing that clearance does support, but they don't know it does or they're not clear how it works. So the questions I were get I was getting were a little off. Like people were saying you couldn't use clearance to do this. And I'm like, oh, we have a whole feature that's designed specifically for this. We just don't surface it, surface it very well or mm. whatever the case may be. And then also like the desire on my end to <laughs> frankly deprecate and remove a whole bunch of stuff. Right. I see. And if there is the the argument I had with Sean, I think on earlier episodes of this podcast was like, if I never bothered documenting any methods at all in clearance, how is anybody supposed to know <laughs> what's public API and what's private API, right. particularly in something like clearance, where clearance is a Rails engine. So it's basically a Rails app. So there are things in clearance that are marked as private, like methods in a controller that mm -hmm. you are expected to override. They yeah. are public API. Yeah. Um, so I can't just say, well, it was private. So like, so I was like, okay, well, step one, I have to start documenting all of this stuff. Um, so I've started doing that. And I was, I was focusing on, I was feeling really great about like, oh, I've got all this great library documentation now. But I still have this, like in Steve Loesch, Loesch, I don't know how to say his name. In his article, he talks about the like different types of documentation you need. Um, so he divides good documentation into four parts, which is first contact, something he calls the black triangle, something else he calls the hairball, and then the reference. So first contact is basically like the readme. How quickly yeah. can you get me to something successful? So yeah. like it sounds like how was the Neo4j experience there? Like how quickly can you get something running? So it's interesting because I actually felt like the first part of doc good documentation, I interpreted that as almost like the marketing page of a piece, like of a product. Yeah, you're right. Like, yeah. How is this going to solve a problem I have? Is yeah. it for me? Yeah, I jumped ahead a little bit in my description. I think. Okay. I'm mixing. I'm mixing the uh, the first two steps, which were what are these? First contact and the black triangle. So first right. contact, he says, is more like, what is it? Why would I care about it? And is it worth any effort to dig into it? Right. Right. Um, and then black triangle is like, how do I? I don't know why he calls it the black triangle, but it's I, like, how do I get up and running with this? Yeah, I 
I don't know what the black triangle means either. Um, <laughs> I saw a, that it was There's a linked. link, but at 404s. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is there? <laughs> That's hilarious. I didn't click on it. I was like, I don't want to get distracted. Um, that's that's really funny. So, okay. So, for the duration of Plib Mit Bugatti on Friday, <laughs> right? Three hours. Yep. I was very focused, not social at all, just focused on my software project. <laughs> and I was able to write a Ruby script that took a JSON blob and created a node in the database. And I was able to write a query to fetch the record from the database. So, and I, and that didn't take me all of the three hours. So I would say that it was quite fast installing the, installing the database was super easy. It, it was available in homebrew. So I just used that. And I think the highest friction part was figuring out what kind of library I wanted to use to not not even necessarily as an ORM, but to communicate from my Ruby script to the database. So I had to do a fair amount of reading about the different Ruby gems that were available to work with Neo4j and what they did and how they were different. But once I figured that out and selected the appropriate tool from there, I just had to figure out how to write a statement in Cypher, which thanks to the tutorial, was very straightforward. And that was it. So it, it went, went very smoothly. Cool. How do you, so how do you gauge users? I don't know how to say this, but so with clearance, you can get up and running pretty quickly in the sense that you just have to run a generator mm-hmm. and you have all of the defaults ready to go. But then oftentimes you'll have to override things. Mm-hmm. So how do you gauge how easy it is to get up and running with something like clearance? Um, I mean, the first thing is like, I want the, I want a good out of box experience. So like that, you know, run that generator, then you should get all of our opinions basically should be mm-hmm. foisted upon you and you should have a working sign in, sign up, sign out thing in your website. And the ability to require people to be signed up or signed in. Mm-hmm. So that's like the first goal. I want people to be able to like download the gem, install it. And like th- there was a quote in one of the linked articles from there, which is a tribute to Kathy Sierra. And it was basically that a new user should be able to experience success within 30 minutes. I think mm-hmm. for like something like clearance, I think that's too long. Like I think I want it to be like you download, you put this in the gem file, you run the generator and boom, you're done. You're in 10 minutes and you can mm-hmm. you're ready to go. So that's that seems to be pretty good. People seem to get that, um, but it's just like how do I how it's hard. It's a hard question to answer it, but I like I feel like the fact that I'm often fielding questions from like Thoughtbot developers about it mm. about like <laughs> oh I how do I do this like I want to like Tute was asking the other day like. Um, what was the functionality he wanted? Oh, like email confirmation, which we get asked this all the time for email confirmation. And it's not something clearance does um, out of the box. And I guess it used to like way back before and it was removed as one of like the opinions we have about um, conversions, basically, that you don't want to send people back to their email. You're going to lose up to 50% of them by doing that. Um, But we specifically in like an earlier version of clearance, like 1.1 or 1.2 or something like that, built in functionality that allows you to build that yourself. 
in a, mm. in a, in a way that doesn't require you to override clearance. But like I get questions like that all the time, which is like, how do I, how am I going to do this? Like what well, clearance can't do this. I should use device, that kind of thing. And mm. I feel like that's where I'm losing people. Like people that are willing to put in, like I know that are willing to like read through documentation. I know they're smart developers. Yeah. I know they're willing, like I know they want to continue using the libraries they're using rather than switching to something else. If I, if I'm answering questions from them that are similar to the questions I'm getting in issues, which I don't get as often, but then I, I think there's a sign that something's gone wrong. So I don't, I don't know what the next step, like for me, like I said, I jumped to like, I need API documentation, but reading through this article has kind of made me realize I need that. And, and like what you were saying, where there's tutorials, I need that like second level documentation, which is like, here's how you get running. Here's mm -hmm. the API documentation. Here are the, like, here's this middle thing, which is like, like is the hairball. The, <laughs> yeah. Is that the hairball? Yeah, I guess that is the, I guess that's what he calls the hairball. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so like, I feel like, like, for example, maybe a tutorial around clearance security, like here are all the different security things you can do. Like, here's our configuration. Here's mm -hmm. what we can reasonably do for you. Here are some things you would like to, you may want to do. Like for a long time, one of the concerns I have is like out of the box clearance does not set the cookie that you're setting for the remember me token to be SSL only. Mm. So that, that cookie could be set over HTTP. Uh -huh. There's a good reason for that, and that's that in development, you're not yeah. usually running HTTPS. And I'd love to see that change at some point, but um, in development, you're not, usually, you're not usually running HTTPS. We want it to work in development. And you can turn on a configuration option, or more, the more like, likely thing that you're probably doing is requiring SSL altogether using like the um, config.forceSSL thing in Rails itself. Right. which will automatically upgrade all your cookies. But these are this is all stuff I want to put in like a guide to clearance security, right? Right, right, right. Or a guide to um, you know, overriding the sign-in process if you want to do like suspended users or you want to do email confirmation, like here's how you would do that type of thing. And then right. possibly like if email confirmation is something everybody asks for, then maybe we just create a gem that's like here's clearance email confirmation and you get that. Yeah. Um but so that middle part is, I mean, <laughs> to be clear, we're totally missing the back end part too, the API documentation. I've been making a lot of progress on that. And we can link to some of that stuff in the show notes. But there's that middle layer that I still have to do. Yeah, I think that API documentation is very useful. I almost feel like as a maintainer, a maintainer meaning someone whose job it is to maintain the project and make sure that people that it's usable it seems like it would be easier as a maintainer to first write the api reference and then write the case studies or the the use specific guides right. because having gone through the process of writing the api reference it's top of mind it's very fresh yeah i mean they're just going through the process of like documenting the internals of clearance i've been maintaining it now for like maybe a year and a half or something like that but i still there were parts of the code that i've never seen before or that <laughs> i didn't that i didn't understand particularly well mm -hmm. and having yeah, having yeah. to write it having to write about it was like oh well we should probably change that or like oh i didn't even know you could do this like to yeah. like as the maintainer i'm still learning things which makes is going to put me in a better position to do that other stuff right those guides tutorials whatever it's going to be um right. so i think it's a good i think it's probably the right order to go in is like back i'm kind of backing into like we have the first contact black triangle thing it's not great but it's there and then i'll go onto the back end and do the reference material and then i'll kind of converge everything and then you know the idea is that eventually everything will kind of be interlinked like you'll be able to go from the documentation to like if you want to hear hear more about this go to the guides on security go to the guide on overriding sign-in process that kind of thing 
Yeah. Um, but you know, that all has to exist before I can, <laughs> right, right, right. Before I can link it up. <laughs> yeah. And this, like the reason why I came across this article by Steve Loesch, uh, just cause we can't get through this episode without mentioning rust is I was on, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was on the, the rust users forum and they were talking about, um, Steve Klabnik who writes a lot of documentation for rust. I think he is employed by Mozilla to write documentation for rust. He mentioned that a user, a single user mentioned that they were leaving the Rust community because the documentation on the on API on like popular libraries was not good. And so he did this giant project where he went through like the top 40 crates, which would be gems, the top 40 crates in Rust and, and looked at them and judged their documentation on these like first contact black triangle hairball and reference material mm -hmm. and tried cool. to see like what what the average was and what the, you know, and, and where they needed to improve that kind of thing. He didn't name names of the libraries, but he just wanted to get like a baseline and then be like, how do we improve and, and try and start establishing how they improve that. So I think that, you know, I think that community is going to benefit from having somebody that's like tasked with improving this documentation. Mm -hmm. um, I think in Rails, we do a halfway decent job at this. Like I don't, I, it used to be terrible and it's still, I feel like Ruby and Rails both get a bad rap for documentation now that's not quite as deserved as it used to be. I feel like it's better, but you know, library documentation, <laughs> clearance included, is not always spectacular. Mm. There is a lot of like everything's in the readme kind of right. approach to things, yeah. and then you and then you're source diving at that point after yeah. that. Yeah, it's it's funny that you say everything's in the readme because when I think about documentation, I think of the readme. I don't I don't really think of other forms of of documentation. I just think of the readme, like what yeah. else would there be? Right. Part of, part of me wonders if that's a, a, like a GitHub thing. Like did GitHub make yeah. us all into that because they so prominently display it. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if that's, that's what that is. And that's like even, and I believe NPM when you search for a module shows the readme from your NPM module yeah. as well, like directly in NPM. Yeah. Um, which is really handy because like, on RubyGems, often the, the short description isn't enough to tell me what's going on here, and I have to click through, and then I get that beautiful README, and then like mm -hmm. I'm off and running, and that's where I'm looking to do everything. Or like Factory Girl has the README, and then they have the Factory Girl Getting Started Guide, which is great. It has like basically everything you want to have in it, and I, re it I reference that thing at least a couple times a month probably. Yeah, it's excellent. So let's take a quick break. Uh, let's talk about our sponsor for today. Our sponsor is Media Temple. Media Temple has been around for a long time. I first used them in the early 2000s. Uh, they're still around, still a premium platform for designers, developers, and creative professionals. So when you're a Media Temple customer, you're on their grid. So your grid account gives you access to host whatever you want. That could be anything from your single web application to your portfolio site, or it could be all of your client projects. Like if you're a freelancer and you've got dozens or hundreds of clients, you can host them all on your single grid server. What's beautiful about the grid is that it's a group of networked servers. So if you get on the front page of Reddit or Hacker News or whatever, your server is going to stand up to all that traffic without a problem. Or if somebody else on that same grid gets onto the front page of those, of those websites, you're not going to be impacted because they know how to handle traffic spikes like that. Also, if all you're really interested in doing is getting up and running quickly, they have one-click installs and all that other stuff in their fantastic controllers. They also have fantastic support. So I've got friends that use Media Temple today and have no problems when they call for support at 10 p.m. if something's going wrong on a Saturday or something like that. They can talk to a human. They're happy to help. As a special discount for Bike Shed listeners, you can use the promo code BIKE25 for 25% off web hosting. Go to mediatemple.net and enter your promo code upon sign up. Thanks again to Media Temple for sponsoring the show. So I have a question 
that I haven't fully formulated. Let me try to formulate it. Sure. How do you deal with documenting changes to the public API in the README? Or sorry, what? It, so let me actually back up and explain, like give you some context where I'm coming from here. I remember a situation I, I ran into with the geocoder gem where the readme referenced something that like it was in the most recent commit on master, but not in the most recent released version of the gem. And I didn't think to check that. And it wasn't until I opened an issue that the maintainer, Alex Reisner pointed out that it just, it just hadn't been released yet. Right. So I, I, I think we, we had a little conversation about how that can be uh, emphasized or highlighted to the user more clearly. Just like, hey, you know, if you're looking at this page, it is not the most recent release. It's it's just the you know the most recent commit. So if you want to look at the README for the release, go to this page. Or you know, how do you how do you communicate to the user that what is in the README that you're looking at right now? might not be accurate for whatever version you're running. Right. I think I've seen that a couple in a more and more places. I'm starting to see the like, this is the readme for master for the latest release version C and then like yeah. a, a link to that. Um, yeah. And that's something else you have to maintain, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. But um, I mean, maybe you could point them to the releases page on GitHub, which then they could drill into the release and look at the readme there or something. So you don't have to keep maintaining that link. Right. But I've seen that a lot. Um, I think a good way to do it actually would be to, well, there's, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like, I think the ideal that I would go after is that the readme is like super high level documentation that hopefully doesn't change as much, but you're still going to have stuff that does change in there. Right. Um, but the idea would be the readme is, is a high level stuff. And then to get into any lower level stuff, you have to drill into links that are go to a specific version. But I don't know how you would pull that off without having to maintain a lot of pointers manually about what the most recent version is and where to go for like the R doc and where to go for the tutorials and where to go for all this other stuff. Yeah, I think that's tough. I think I think the best thing I've seen so far is like a giant note at the top of the yeah. readme is that like yeah. this is for the master version. Another thing I used to do with clearance is like I used to maintain the news file as I went between releases. So mm -hmm. I would say new on master and then I would point, I would put whatever was new on master. And then whenever I was ready to cut, like say version 1.2, I would change new on master to version 1.2 and then commit that. For whatever reason, I kind of fell out of that habit. So like what I could do, if, if I were still doing that, what I could do is say like, this is the readme for master to see what's been added to master since your last release. See this, you know, news file, which is your change log, but not, you know, boiled down to what the user actually needs to know about. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing you could do. I've kind of fallen out of habit of doing that. And now I just write the entire news file when I do the release. Mm -hmm. um, I look as usually I release often and usually there's only a few commits between releases. Um, right. So it's not a big, not a huge deal for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it is a, I think it's a tricky thing. I think also like talking about things either like, so the readme has the problem often of getting ahead of what's released, right? But then yes. you have this whole other side, which is the wiki, which oh. gets way behind. Yeah, it's such <laughs> like, a nightmare. I just wish there's some stuff in the clearance wiki. I'm pretty close to just turning it off. I deleted a bunch of stuff maybe a year ago where I was like, this is just totally wrong. And I have no idea 
what the equivalent is today. And yeah. um, but I, whenever I do a Google search and I end up on a GitHub wiki, I'm there are exceptions to this, but as the general rule, I know that like this has probably got about a forty percent chance of working. Um, so, yeah, I think um, in the Steve Loesch article, he he talks about wikis and how they're you know pits of misinformation and right. Well, I mean, I actually I think what he's talking about specifically is allowing anyone to contribute to. Right. The wiki, right? Right. If you're pointing, if you're pointing at the wiki as your great documentation, and you're allowing anybody to contribute at any time, and there's no editor, right? There's no person yeah. that decides like, oh, this has gone out of date, or this is incorrect, or this isn't the best way to do this. Mm-hmm. You're going to have in- inaccuracies. And then I think it was that article that also mentioned. It might have been some of the stuff that's linked to, which are all the articles he links to in there at the top, which he says is like required pre-reading or whatever, are also pretty good. So it might have been in one of those, but they mentioned that it also lacks a consistent voice when you do it that way um, yeah. because you no longer have a teacher or a group of teachers. You have right. many different people writing in their their own styles, uh, emphasizing what they think is important. Yeah. So you lose yeah, a little bit of true. that. So if you were to, so you're writing API documentation for clearance, but as a next step, do you think you would want to write some kind of guide for a specific use case? Yeah, I think I would. I think I'd want to talk about like specifically the questions that come up often are like, how do I tweak the sign in process to, you know, they're, they're not asking this question specifically. That's the problem. So nobody's saying, how do I tweak the sign in process to disallow people from logging in who have not confirmed their email? Right. Right. What they're saying is I want email confirmation. Uh-huh. So I need to find a way to get them from I want email confirmation to show them that they can tweak the sign in process to disallow people from signing in who have not confirmed their email. And right. I, so that's where there needs to be some sort of connection between the API documentation, which now documents sign in guards, which is the feature you would use to do that and their question. And how do I get them? How do I get between there? And mm-hmm. I would like to do that. I'm not entirely sure. Like, if it makes, to sen- makes sense to do that on like a clearance website where it's like clearance or I guess it'd be thoughtbot.github.com slash or github.io slash clearance or something, whatever it would be there. Or if it makes right. sense to like ship it right in the repo in the doc directory so it gets versioned along with everything else. Mm. Um, so I, I've got to think some more about that, but that's where I'd like to go and then start writing more of those use case driven things like security. Like if you're, if you're curious about security, like Rails has the Rails security guide, which is great. And like I read that thing probably once every couple of years had to start to finish and reference it quite often just because there's interesting stuff in there. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to have a similar, like doesn't need to be anywhere near as thorough because the security aspects we're concerned with are a lot narrower. Um, yes. But it can be something great for people to like all those concerns I mentioned before. So that's what I'd like to get at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that sounds great. And I think you were highlighting that the difficult part is getting from the readme to some kind of call to action that the user recognizes as something that addresses his problem to full thorough documentation or, you know, some kind of tutorial uh, regarding that problem. And I think what what comes to mind for me is like a frequently asked questions. And those are something I often don't associate with open source libraries. I think of them, I, in my head, I think of them more as something I, I reference when I want to understand things about a product. But it seems like that might be 
worth considering for yeah, your case. Yeah, certainly. Because then I could say, like, here's your question, which we get frequently. How do I, <laughs> how do, I do email confirmation? Right. And here is, the, here is the answer that guides you towards the primitive, or not primitives, but the APIs that we have in clearance that support doing this and more interesting things yeah. um, that you might be interested. Like, one of the things I used it for before is a suspend, like, a user has been suspended for some sort of bad conduct or whatever. So you can, like, say, put in a check that says, like, is this user suspended? Don't let them sign it. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can do that all from within clearance, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I've got a. <laughs> it was funny because like two weeks ago, I was sitting there. I was like, I think I got to the point now where I either have documented or have pull requests for documentation on everything in the lib directory in clearance. And now I just got to document the, I got to do API documentation on the app directory. And I was like, okay, I'm feeling great. And then I'll go and I'll revisit <laughs> the readme and I'll link all this stuff up to the art, to like the rendered R docs and it'll be fantastic. And then I started reading this and I was like, no. I still am missing that whole middle layer and then the interlinking <laughs> of them. And yeah, there's a uh, lot to do, but it's, it's okay. Yeah. You, you, people will help. Like, I don't know. You know. <laughs> well, I'll help. I'll okay. help you. All right, great. Oh, you're on the hook now. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting. Like we, we've talked on this show a lot about how, uh, before about how like doing documentation is a great way to get started. Except I think people say like, you have to be an expert in order to do documentation. Right. Um, which is, true on some levels but on other levels like how many times have you used a library where like the documentation says it works one way and you use it and it doesn't work that way right it works a different way a few times yes even if that is a bug changing the documentation to reflect how it actually works is valuable because like who knows yeah. how long they're going to get how long it's going to take to get around to addressing that bug but if you can fix the documentation then at least nobody else is going to follow in your footsteps exactly and see that get that same problem. So like you don't have to be an expert to contribute to documentation. You probably yeah. have to be decently knowledgeable to take a take a library from zero to documented. Yeah. <laughs> but to contribute to a single to change to tweak documentation or document an, a previously undocumented method in a fairly well documented code base or something like that is you know something that is approachable. I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, just very quickly, we also wanted to mention that ThoughtBot is hiring for many different positions. So we're hiring for design for designers in San Francisco and New York City, iOS developers all over, Android developers all over, and web developers in San Francisco, Austin, and Denver. So if you listen to the show, like the stuff we talk about, and are skilled in any of those areas, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash jobs, and there are links to the description on those positions and links to apply. Uh, let them know you heard about us from the podcast, and uh, you know, maybe we'll be working with you soon. Okay, should we wrap up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I okay. think it's time. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 34. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. If you have any feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>